Before we begin, let's pay our respects and acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where we record this podcast today. We would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where our guest today is. We recognize the continuing connections to land, water, and communities of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We pay our respects to elders, past, present, and emerging. I'm just a former politician pretending to be a diplomat. If you want to get, if you want to have, if you want to have a podcast uh, with a diplomat, you want, to, you want to get a serious diplomat so that your listeners might be inspired to join the profession. Hello and welcome to In the Spirit of Spinning Yarns, our unlimited podcast series. We are welcoming spring in Australia. It's a beautiful day and we are very excited to be joined in today's episode by His Excellency Barry O'Farrell, AO former Australian politician and now Australia's High Commissioner in India. Today's episode is a day in the diary of Barry in India. Melbourne born in an army background family, his family moved around Australia, ending in Darwin. His Excellency Barry O'Farrell, AO, who insisted we call him Barry, moved to Canberra in 1977, where his career took off in serving the people of Australia through his myriad career roles in politics, to business and now in diplomacy. Diplomacy in the epicenter of pandemic COVID-19. So friends, here is Barry. Welcome and thank you for joining in the spirit of spinning yarns, Barry. How are you doing today in these historic times in the world in the epicenter of pandemic? Good, thanks, Akashika. The you know, pandemic is with us. It hasn't peaked in this country, so therefore it's not on the downward decline. But I think we're simply learning to live with it and to manage the risks. Uh, and I certainly feel safe, particularly here uh, in the Australian Embassy. Wow, that's beautiful. And truly, this is a wonderful yarn, Barry, leading us to our next bit in getting to know a little bit more about you. So this year has started in a very extraordinary way. 2020 people want to delay. But for you, it started on a beautiful note at the same time, at a very odd note where you've just been put into the whole COVID scenario in India as Australian High Commissioner. So Barry, tell us a little bit about the transition as a distinct diplomat from a statesman, from the 43rd Premier of New South Wales, taking those multiple delegations from New South Wales to India, and now straight into the mainstream diplomacy. Well, it was a long transition um, in that I left Parliament in 2014 and uh, only got a phone call about this job in September of last year. So I, I managed to make my transition from politics uh, to business, charitable and uh, sporting activities. And I was happily ensconced in that. And I got a phone call asking if I was interested in the role of High Commissioner to India. And uh, of course, I was in part because of, of my interest in India when I was Premier, before I was Premier and uh, subsequently. And it was, I think, an 
opportunity to do what I'd always been slightly critical of others about, which is to try and strengthen and take the relationship to a new level. That's fantastic, Barry. So what was the gravity that was in the moment when you were being sworn in? Well, because my transition to diplomacy, as you like to describe it, uh, was rather quick. I joined the Department of Foreign Affairs on the 18th of November. I left to come to India on the 18th of February. Everything was, and we had Christmas and bushfires in between. Everything was pretty short, sharp and terrific. And uh, I was uh, telephoned in September to be asked about the job. Uh, I accepted in October. I was with DFAT in November and I was here in India uh, on the 18th of February, which now seems like a lifetime ago. And what's even more unfamiliar these days is that within a week of arriving the Australian Minister for Trade had arrived with 100 businessmen. And so we spent a couple of days in Delhi interacting with Indian business. We had a, a day and a bit in Mumbai. We had a night in Bangalore. And that's the furthest I've travelled. I haven't been out of Delhi since that week. Yeah. And with that, you know, and that's what diplomacy is like, right? There are delegations, there are events. How is it evolving now in these times with isolation and social distancing? So I expected diplomacy to be a bit like politics. There'd be breakfast lunches, dinners, too many of uh, There'd be lots of social events. There'd be lots of face-to-face meetings. None of that has happened thanks to this pandemic called COVID-19. And on the one hand, that's that's good for my fitness. It's good for my weight. On the other hand, I do, I do miss that element of my old career politics and that element of politics that I thought would be part and parcel of doing the job here in India, which is networking to gain contacts, gain influence, and uh, to pursue the social, economic, and, and political objectives of our government. And how is that going in terms of pivoting around around that kind of what keeps you busy, Barry? Well, you know, I live like many people in the current climate uh, on the phone or in this room where I'm uh, engaged in video conferencing for most of the day. You know, we've known this technology has been there for, for years. It's sat on on bookcases and shelves relatively unused. It's taken this pandemic, a shutdown of flights, uh, uh, an inability to travel for us all to understand that whether it's podcasts like this, whether it's uh, uh, WebEx and uh, Team and all those other uh, video conferencing techniques, uh, or whether it's a simple phone that you can, as I've had to, create contacts, meet people, engage with people, pursue issues, uh, represent your government uh, using other forms and fronting up and talking. And that feels like there's still some order to it and there's still that element of people connection but we know diplomacy is not always fun and orderly right what has been non-orderly well we had of course the prime minister's uh, summit with prime minister modi which was a virtual leader summit uh, on the 4th of june and i have to say that i realized in the week or so leading up to that just how hard uh, bureaucrats uh, uh, defat officials and diplomats work to ensure the success of those events uh, as a former premier or in indian terms chief minister uh, i went to many of these meetings on official visits I now have a greater realisation as to the efforts put in by those on both sides in organising them. And uh, my team here worked uh, long hours, faced uh, a number of obstacles, were matched in effort by their opposite numbers in the Ministry of External Affairs. And we delivered a delivered a virtual leader summit that was India's first, for which they still talk about. It elevated our relationship to a new level and it uh, included the many, many agreements and mem- memorandums of understanding, which I think position us both strategically, uh, but also from an economic position, uh, in a good position to to, uh, to emerge from the COVID to crisis. That's fabulous, Barry. And clearly, this is not the first time you're engaging with India or traveling or visiting or working with India. As long as it seems to be, how is the great Indian experience turning out so far? Well, I've been coming to India on and off for 
more than a decade. I came firstly when I was in opposition, worried about if I won the, the election the next year, how would we get the state's economy going? And I saw this big economy uh, in this part of the world and thought, we don't do much with India. Let's, let's have a look at that. So I came before I was elected. And the moment I got here, uh, I sort of fell in love with the place and I've been coming back ever since. I, I came officially as Premier. I came in some business roles. I came uh, through the Australian India Council and I came privately. But each of those visits, I have to say, were effectively the, the week long or in one case, two weeks long visits to cities, Mumbai, Delhi, of course, Bangalore, Chennai, Jaipur. Very few of them gave me an opportunity to get out and about in the country. And I regret to say that I've been here now just over six months and I still feel as I'm on a business trip. It's the world's longest business trip. I'm not living in a hotel, I'm living in a residence, but I'm still not seeing anything more of, of rural India, of regional India, or some of the great sites or some of the great tourist centres in India. And I look forward to doing that at some stage in my off time when I do get that leave and those weekends to myself. Fabulous, Barry. And are you still working from home? Well, we don't work from home, but it's the next best thing. So my commute of a morning is a two-minute walk from my front door to the front of the Chancery, which is the office accommodation for my colleagues here uh, at the Australian High Commission. So uh, I get up early in the morning, I go to the gym, uh, I have my breakfast, I read the papers, which is now, again, something that I do for uh, for work, not for pleasure. I make phone calls back to Australia because of the time difference. It means it's much better to do it before midday in India because you get to talk to people. And then we come into the office. I come into the office about 8.20. The meetings start about 9.30. And as I say, I'm in a room like this or uh, or internal meetings for the rest of the day. And I, I head home about six. So in a sense, the days aren't too different from what I was doing previously, except for the fact that we don't spend a lot of time with face-to-face meetings. Um, the great thing is uh, I have a routine, which I think has helped with mental health. And the even better thing is, having come from Sydney, my commute is only a couple of minutes as opposed to 40 minutes an hour plus. Yeah, no more getting stuck in the traffic endlessly. Absolutely. Although, although you know, Delhi's not back to normal when, even though the traffic has increased, you can't hear that <laughs> traditional sounds of Indian horns being, being used all the time. So I rarely hear a horn in India. And I know when I start to hear a horn in Delhi that uh, the COVID peak will have been reached. Yeah, that's right. And thank you, Barry, for describing what your day looks like, because there's great interest right now in just understanding what does diplomacy even look like in these times. Just moving from there, what are the sort of priorities that you're driving at the moment? Our priorities are very simple. So we have uh, social links with uh, with India, we have political links with India, we have economic links with India, and we have that the bit we don't talk about much, the defence and, and strategic links with India. And so uh, we're simply trying to deepen all of those. The, the defence and strategic have been going strong for, for many years. The social links have increased happily in part because of the increasing Indian diaspora uh, in Australia. So, you know, as, as we talk today, uh, one in 35 Australians are of Indian uh, heritage. Either either their parents were born in India, one of their parents were born in India, or they were born in India. And I think that's been a, a big change in the, in the perspective on India uh, from Australia. So the social links have been going well. The economic links, we've got some companies here like uh, Macquarie Bank, who are the largest investors in toll roads uh, in India of any, of any company. We've got uh, uh, San Remo pasta, we've got Capilano honey, we've got some magnificent uh, Australian food products being sold in here. Swiss uh, 
vitamins are, are very big here in India, and you can see all these on the Australia store at uh, Amazon.India. So we, we've done we've done okay, and of course we've got the agricultural products. So we sell some barley, some wheat, uh, we sell minerals to India, um, but it's not grown, I think, to the extent that Australia and to some extent India, who want to export more to Australia, have anticipated. And so I think part of uh, the Prime Minister's meetings is is a commitment to, uh, to try and strengthen the economic relationship, uh, to promote investment in each country and to uh, to further uh, the growth of business in, in both of our nations. And we could both benefit from it, rightly so. Absolutely. You know, at the end of the day, uh, government knows, government of India, government of Australia, knows that uh, a strong economy not only delivers jobs, but creates the wealth that underpin the living standards. And that's probably easier in Australia than it is here in India, where the difference between people's positions can be dramatically different. You know, you've got Mumbai with more billionaires than anywhere else in the world, through to, uh, you know, in the same city, uh, one of the biggest slums in the world. Uh, uh, that's not something that we relate to directly in Australia, which is not to say that Australia, particularly uh, Aboriginal Australia, isn't without disadvantage. Uh, but, uh, you know, it reinforces the need to have uh, a strong economy to give people the opportunity to earn a living, uh, but more importantly, uh, to, uh, to enjoy a life standard and standards of living uh, that uh, we would all hope for each other. You're listening to In the Spirit of Spinning Yarns with Deepthi and Akashika. We would love to hear from you. So please follow us on Instagram at wired underscore global or Twitter at global underscore wired. You can also send us a DM and we look forward to hearing from you about your stories. Fantastic, Barry. And talking about the food, have you tried the Frosty Boy ice creams from Yatala to New Delhi? I haven't tried Frosty Boy, but I know and, and I regret to say that my wife and uh, my driver know the, 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 the name of it. But uh, there is an ice cream that's produced down the road that I'm very fond of. But I have to confess that uh, I continue to watch my weight. So therefore, I've only bought it twice in the six months I've been here. Very inspiring. In the spirit of spinning yarns, we would like to know now that your offices at a stone's throw from your residence, you must be having a really good balancing act between life and diplomacy. Are you reading anything these days or are you playing golf? What is your life and work balance routine like? Well I, well, I did bring my golf clubs and I did try before I came to improve my atrocious golf game and I haven't touched them since I've been here. Largely because the courses have been closed. I understand they're now open, but I don't think I'm yet in a state to be able to be seen and represent Australia on the golf course. So I have to do a fair bit of work behind the scenes. Routine gets me through. I'm not sure I have a balance because I don't know what the full dimension of the job is yet because I'm essentially, except for a couple of meetings a week, still restricted to the High Commission. Not physically. But because people in a time of COVID in a country where it hasn't peaked are particularly sensitive about whether or not they want to meet face to face. We're seeing it, it uh, relax a little bit, but but not a lot. So and my way of getting through that from day one has been to have a routine. I've described my 
routine deal, which is hardly exciting. But uh, but it, it copes, it deals for it works for me. And uh, as you know, the exercise and obviously I, I haven't read so much since I got here. India is a great place, as you know, for for books. I love bookshops. Uh, I will take back more books than anything else from India. Probably more books and memories, perhaps. But I'm enjoying that. And uh, and if I do if I do have one of those moments where it gets a bit flat, I switch to fiction. So uh, whether it's a book, whether it's uh, a TV show, whether it's a movie. Last weekend uh, it wasn't flat, but I, I I hadn't seen it for a long time. I watched Godfather Two, which I think is the best of the Godfather trilogies. I don't recommend any of the morals or the uh, activities uh, that, are, that it portrays. It's a fantastic movie with some great actors. It sure is. Coming back from fiction into reality, Barry, and you touched upon this earlier. We were starting to talk about how India is has the biggest migrant population in Australia, right? And there's a big impact of that. Potentially now you're the minority in India in many ways. What is that like? Well, it's clearly the, that case. I, I'm, I don't speak Hindi. And the good news is many people here speak English. I, uh, you know, struggle to find my way around because it, it's it's a new city that I, I haven't been left to my own devices in uh, previously. Uh, there's all sorts, you know, r- routines, uh, grocery shops, grocery shopping, searching products, all those things. Uh, working out uh, what's a good watermelon, what's a bad watermelon, working out whether the pomegranate that's being sold is fresh or not. All, all those things are, are new. And that's that's the experience of migrants to Australia, who uh, the difference is, of course, uh, I came here voluntarily for employment. I know many migrants come to Australia voluntarily, but of course, our history has been littered with people that essentially had no alternative and and have been required to come to Australia to flee uh, all sorts of disasters and uh, uh, and trials at home. Uh, I grew up in Darwin, and I think because Darwin was a frontier town because in those days, because Darwin was a highly multicultural town in those days, I've always been fascinated throughout my life, including my political life, in people's stories, people's stories about why they came to Australia, what it was that brought them to Australia. Um, and you know, when you talk to people about that, you know, yes, some of them are very sad. Some of those people that came out uh, after the Vietnam War, some of those people that came out through other conflicts in, in the Middle East, in, uh, in Europe and the like uh, in the 80s and 90s. But you know, all of them came out with, with hope in their hearts. All of them came out looking for a, a better life. And I know that's the case of people that came from India to Australia. And, uh, and I'm sure there probably are people that migrate from Australia to India or from other countries to, uh, to India. Uh, I'm not really living that experience. Uh, I know I'm here for three years. Uh, uh, I know that uh, as someone who can't speak a language in another country, uh, I'm putting up with a little bit of the discomfort and uh, uh, and uh, concerns people have when they move countries. But compared to what uh, our multicultural community in Australia has gone through, uh, I'm 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 on a I'm on a platinum level. You know, I'm I'm on first class. I'm on the Amex uh, Amex uh, version of. Uh, of migration. Yep, you're in the lounge, Barry, with the, with, with the slight discomfort, as you mentioned. And and it's interesting that you talk about stories, right? And and of course, having spent time with multicultural communities in, in Australia and having met a lot of Indians who are in Australia are, or, are, or are of Australian origin, there must be those perception about ways of living, people, culture. Has that shifted in any way since you spending this considerable amount of time in India? Is there anything new that you've learned about the people, culture, ways of living that could be tagged as a startling discovery that you would have never thought? I suspect the answer is not yet, but but it's clearly on its way. So 
I've got many friends, uh, Australian friends who are of Indian origin. They live largely Australian lives. Uh, I was to go to uh, a friend's wedding in uh, in July, which got cancelled thanks to COVID. So I would have had my first experience of, a, of an Indian wedding, albeit it was going to be in Belgrade. So I suspect the longer I'm here, once we, once we deal with this crisis or else we get the vaccine, life will become more normal. I'll be in people's homes. I'll be seeing how they live in their country, uh, which I know is as important to them as the way we live in ours. And, uh, you know, in every culture, inviting someone into your home uh, is a mark of respect. It's special uh, and it's an experience that people never forget. So I'm looking forward to that when it starts to happen. But I'm not going to let you off the hook until you just give us one line in Hindi that you've picked up and then <laughs> over to If you had spoken to me two weeks ago, I could have given you two lines in Hindi because I learnt two lines in Hindi for a video I did for uh, India's Independence Day. I have uh, a number of Hindi speakers here and, of course, what they do to assist me is that they uh, put it into... Uh, letters that allow me to uh, to pronounce it. And for three days afterwards, I could recite the whole thing. Here we are two weeks later, and, and other than saying uh, Namaskar and Danyavad, that's about it. Um, so uh, what what I will do eventually, and I'm, I'm sharing this exclusively with your listeners, I will, I will do the old political trick when I'm out and about uh, and life is more normal. I will do what many politicians do when they visit uh, ethnic communities across Australia, I'll have an opening line, I'll have a closing line, I'll get to master it perfectly and I'll still go back home in uh, in three years' time with uh, about a dozen words of Hindi to my collection. You'll do much better than that, Barry. You're interested. I have no ear for language. I, I, I struggle with English. Um, I'll throw them into Akashika. This is such a delightful yarn, Barry and Deepthi. I am totally loving it. And I love your nationalism, Barry, you know, all about the food and all that stuff, you know, one liver, one stomach to give for one's country. Well, these are the wheels of diplomacy we are in. So let's take a deep dive in the post-COVID world and let's talk about the continuation of the great Australian journey with India. Clearly, the pre-COVID plan to transform the India-Australia partnership through the India Economic Strategy to 2035, covering 10 sectors, 10 priority states were on track. How is this going to look like in a post-COVID world? Well, I think the fundamentals of Peter Varghese's report, which that uh, uh, strategy was built on, are fundamentally sound. You know, there's that old joke, uh, Akashika, that how do you eat an elephant? And the answer is one piece at a time. And I think what Peter Varghese's report provided to Australian business was an understanding that you don't tackle India head on. You don't try and tackle it uh, completely. What you do is you break it down to states, you break it down to sectors you're interested in and you pursue them there. And if you're smart, you partner with an Indian company on your way in. So I think the fundamentals are right. I think the comprehensive strategic partnership, the agreements that have come out of that uh, will also reflect that. So for instance, Peter Varghese's report mentioned uh, the importance of the resource sector. And that's that's a sector, whether it's coal, whether it's gold, uh, whether it's uh, other things that's been important for a number of years. But what he identified was the critical minerals and critical earths that Australia has access to, particularly in Western Australia, will be critically important for India if it wants to achieve its dual ambitions of the largest world-class electric vehicle industry in the world and also the largest uh, electric battery business in the world. Because to do both of those things, you need lithium, you need nickel. Uh, And we have companies in Australia that can provide that. Uh, The alternative source is largely China. And as we know, uh, countries countries and businesses are now trying to diversify their supply chains because we discovered in COVID that if you have a global pandemic and you rely too much on one source for inputs 
goods to business, uh, you end up increased trouble. So I think this is an opportunity for Australia to to uh, help diversify supply chains, not just to India, but to other countries in our region, uh, and to do so using the elements that we have naturally, whether it's uh, those things I've been talking about, resources, whether it's some of our agricultural products, or a bit like uh, India in reverse, whether it's some of the services that we can offer. So in the mining en- and engineering services, we have we're technical services, we have great skills to assist India to exploit its own resources. Uh, and we have, uh, I think over over Christmas, New Year, we imported 200 merino sheep into India to assist Indian wool producers to improve their flocks. So there's many things we can do. The Indian economic strategy is still is still sound. Peter Varghese put in place a good roadmap as to how to proceed it. But yes, um, it'll take a bit longer now because of COVID. Prime Minister Morrison said a month or two ago that we will come out of COVID a bit poorer. And I think that's true of every country. Uh, but it doesn't mean that we won't quickly reset, that we won't quickly re- re- realign our goals. And it doesn't mean we won't achieve those goals. I'm particularly very excited about the uranium opportunities from New South Wales and also the skills exchange that you very valuably said in this sector from India. I think that will be a very big win-win situation. Now, coming back to the burning question, we've often heard you talk about the diaspora, you know, the people-to-people diplomacy link, both for the Australian diaspora in India and the Indian diaspora here in Australia as crucial enablers. So uh, how do you think this progress can be good alliance for Australia or due to some bad issues could also disrupt the progress? And how can we prevent it? Well, you know, let's, let's go to the bad issues. First, I first came to India just after the uh, student violent incidents in Melbourne, which were very limited. But of course, my first lesson in arriving in India was that you have as vibrant, uh, as loud, as noisy uh, a, uh, a tabloid press as Australia does. Uh, what were a couple of isolated incidents were were amplified enormously. And uh, for four, for the first four years I visited India, I couldn't do a press conference without being asked about it. Happily, those things have died down. I think I think having a bigger diaspora in Australia means that if anything like that happened in future, um, it's more likely that the Australian Indian diaspora would say it was an isolated incident. It, it doesn't reflect the whole country. So one of the things the diaspora can do on that negative side, and I'll come to the positive, is to ensure that whatever portrayal of Australia uh, is provided by the vigorous and free media here, if it's incorrect, I'm sure they'll help us correct uh, correct the record. The positives I think the diaspora does is, firstly, it provides us indirectly with a degree of Indian literacy. Now, the worst mistake anyone can make is turning up in a country uh, and, and thinking that they know all about it. In the, in the 50s and 60s in Australia, visiting uh, film stars and singers like Frank Sinatra would come here and the first thing they, for, the, for their first visit, and yeah. at the airport they'd be asked, what do you think of Australia? What, what's your perception of Australia? Now, you know, uh, happily, happily uh, having such a large diaspora in Australia, having uh, so many Indians in so many fields in Australia, uh, means that many Australians get to interact with them, get to understand a bit about their culture as you do with people uh, you, uh, you 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 mix with um, that can do a number of things for us. It can it can pe- steer people in the direction of certain uh, opportunities. Uh, it can educate people about the way in which business is done uh, here in India. And of course, if I can say this uh, advisedly, that I used to joke when I was premier that uh, I thought that all Indian migrants to Australia were Gujaratis because when you ask when you ask them enough questions. They always had a business they were running on the side. And I now know, can I tell you, that uh, that's just not common to Gujaratis. It's common to so many 
uh, people from across India. Uh, and of course, my, my third point about the benefit of the Indian diaspora is many of them are engaged with business uh, and some of those businesses do do work uh, in India. And so they're doing they're doing even more. They're being great citizens, but they're also helping to strengthen the, the economic relationship. So the diaspora, whichever way you cut it, whichever way you look at it, I think is becoming a strength for Australia. Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. Barry, with the Australian diaspora also now in India, how do you think this whole people-to-people diplomacy and then also leveraging India's remarkably world's youngest 440 million plus millennials to help Australia's breath? Well, you know, more, the more linkages we have, the better. As I was reminded this morning, uh, 40% of India's population is aged between 15 and 25. Uh, yes. 66%, two-thirds, are younger than 35. It's a, it's a young, a tech-savvy, literate, educated country. And I think all of those are a, a magnificent dividend uh, for India. And the more students that uh, we can attract to Australia will create lasting bonds for us. And, you know, the, whether it's the new Colombo plan, the old Colombo plan, or the existing efforts of, of, of the magnificent Australian universities in attracting students from India to a first-class learning experience in Australia, those those ties will last forever. I've met in my interactions here, uh, people who've told me they've studied in Australia and have warm feelings about that. So I think all of those, all of those are positive, as are, as are our efforts to, to assist India or, uh, on, on issues, whether working in partnership with them to help reform the World Health Organization to ensure that when the next pandemic comes, it's even better equipped and better able to, uh, to assist countries across the world, uh, or whether it's some of the uh, public diplomacy work that we do, we do here in India. So recently, I had the great experience to uh, join with a union minister who has a constituency in Bihar in opening a COVID hospital where uh, Australia had assisted in providing providing electricity and other facilities to enable um, the electricity and, and, and uh, through recycling, so solar panels and the like, to, to enable the ability of, um, of ventilators and other things to be used. Now, that's, that's something that will be valued by that community. That's something that is known to have been delivered by Australia to that community. Uh, and I think that sort of, that's, those sort of linkages continue to strengthen the, the broader. You, know, you build trust on, on small steps in any relationship, um, personal, business or, or political. And, uh, and I think... Uh, I think steps like that are just as important as uh, meetings between prime ministers. Long live India, Australia, those stay. In the ambitious India strategy, making India the third largest Asian destination has been a key opportunity. What would this mean from an Australian investment point of view? Clearly, now we are in a COVID world and Prime Minister Morrison has made it clear we are going to be on the other side of economy in the next few years. So how do you think this particular focus is going to evolve? I think that uh, the reforms that India has made, enabling more foreign direct investment to be put into a whole range of sectors from from airports to roads, as I said with Macquarie, uh, through to uh, 
uh, mining these days is 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 a good thing. It's a good thing because India needs that investment to help it develop its uh, its uh, economy, to develop its resources, and to achieve its ambitions. It's a good thing for Australia uh, because it provides uh, uh, investments in a in a in a country where it's not that long ago where India's return rates, uh, India's GDP rate, were three, four, five, and sometimes six times greater than those in Australia. And it's also important for those of us who are getting to the stage of their lives where they start to think about their superannuation because our super funds are now so large. There's so much money in our pension funds in Australia that we're we're effectively running out of local investments to put them into. And the best thing we can do for our current and future retirees is to ensure they have they have good investment opportunities for, for those funds that are, in, that are meant to provide them for their retirement. So Canada went through this in the 60s. The, Canada, the Canadian teachers' pension funds are, can be found in all countries investing in projects, including in Australia. Uh, and I suspect uh, Australian super funds, which started to come here in a big way in the last couple of years, will continue to invest in India. And that means that, that's, that's a positive. It's been underdone before. It's been underdone because I think people have seen opportunities elsewhere and haven't quite realised what's been on their own doorstep, or at least across uh, an ocean we share. And uh, and I think that uh, Macquarie, who's not known for uh, for being a benevolent investor, uh, but known for getting a good return for shareholders, is well ahead of the curve on this. Uh, and I suspect others will follow. Over to you, Deepthi. Thank you, Barry. With, with so much happening and so many developments, of course, there's a large population here in Australia, the Indian diaspora, as we keep speaking about, Barry, who is successful, able to contribute in a significant way to furthering some of this and, and really helping support, nurture, guide this in whichever way they can. Are there any new forums for dialogue and engagement that you would like to highlight that might be really useful to, to the diaspora here? Well, we've been um, engaged actively here, both myself and others, in, in webinars throughout this pandemic. Um, I know that I've uh, participated in some joint uh, Australia-India Business Council, some Confederation of Indian Industry webinars uh, on, on, on the generic relationship, on specific elements of it. A week wouldn't go by without me being involved in market-segmented uh, webinars, uh, many of which involve uh, diaspora. We engage here at the Commission on a monthly basis with our with what we call the Australian alumni. They're people that have studied in Australia. The last uh, uh, iteration of that, we spoke to two uh, people involved in sport in different ways uh, here in India, both of whom had studied in Australia, one's currently working in Australia, uh, and it was great to get their perspective. So th- there's no doubt that uh, we can better harness uh, the diaspora, but if I'm, if I'm honest, I think the diaspora does okay for itself. Uh, uh, I think where we need to do more work uh, is at the business to business, the B2B level, uh, to ensure that we have uh, better connections between our businesses and uh, Indian businesses. And I'm, I was delighted when I came that the Board of Tourism Australia was here with the Minister for, uh, for Trade and Investment, uh, because it's good for directors of Australian companies, uh, of, a, of superannuation funds, of banks, uh, of major companies, to visit places like India to see what's on offer themselves because you can you can see it on a piece of paper, you can see it in a board paper, you can see it in an annual report, you can see it in a prospectus. But uh, it's not you won't appreciate it in my view until you see the size of this country, what's on offer in this country. You know, prior to uh, to COVID, uh, 70 million passengers a day travelled on planes uh, in India. Um, the uh, 
Aviation Minister this morning said they're uh, up to about a quarter of that, and he expects by Diwali uh, that uh, it'll be over half. Now, you know, um, why do I raise that? Well, because airports, airports uh, uh, are constantly growing here. Um, I think in my time going to Mumbai, I started at an old airport. It was replaced by a new one, and a third one's about to open. And and I don't imagine Delhi. Well, Delhi, in fact, one's opening outside of Delhi to complement Delhi. So, uh, um, you know, there's there's a lot of investments here. Uh, we just need for Australian business to understand that in breaking into any new market, it takes resilience, it takes persistence, and to get over perhaps uh, some of the ease of doing business that they've had uh, in another country over the past couple of decades. Rightly said. And 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 with that uh, in mind, uh, talking about the flights in the airports, you obviously have taken this flight and you've been there six months. Have you met Prime Minister Modi? And if and what other alliances or inspiring friendships that there may be to speak about? I haven't met Prime Minister Modi on this trip yet because uh, uh, he's he's very particular, as are many people, about. Uh, his exposure to COVID. I'm not aware that he's met many people in person since the lockdown started, but I have to say this, he's incredibly active uh, in video conferencing. There wouldn't be a day goes by without him contacting some world leader uh, or engaging with uh, with his uh, chief ministers. Uh, I think it was the governors today or yesterday. Um, but I met him in 2012 when we were both uh, chief ministers slash premiers of our states. And uh, uh, it was, uh, I, he struck me at the time of being uh, an interesting combination between an extrovert, someone who was warm uh, and uh, and and welcoming, but also someone who was sage-like, uh, who who was very uh, considered in his responses, uh, but was always wise in what he said. Uh, uh, and you'll be pleased to know that uh, I've even had a swing with him. On the way out of the office, I sat on the jeweller with him and uh, and we had a chat there. And I have this great photo of, uh, of a younger Modi and even younger me uh, on the jeweller outside his office in Ahmedabad. We'd love to be able to share that, Barry, <laughs> if you can get your hands on it. Any advice that you would give to Australian families if they were to familiarise themselves with India? Any, any hot tips, lessons? as we close this beautiful conversation off? I think I think you should come to India. India is, India is in, indeed incredible. It's the best tourism uh, tag in the world. Incredible India sums up in two words uh, this country. They ought to embrace it. Uh, they, ought to, they ought to... I don't know whether either of you have ever had the great joy of getting in a watercourse, a river or a creek uh, uh, on a hot day and just lying on your back and allowing it to float you down its course. It's one of the one of the joys of life, and I think when you get to India, it is immersion therapy. Do not try to change India. Uh, come here, uh, sample everything that's on offer, and just just let it take you where it takes you. And I and I know from friends, I know from family, I know from relatives and others that it's taken some of them into very deep spiritual areas. It's taken others uh, uh, into magnificent tourist attractions. Uh, uh, it, it's all on offer. Uh, so I'm, I'm not paid to. Uh, to encourage tourism to to India, but I'm and I'm looking forward to doing it myself one day to get out of Delhi and do it. But uh, but I, I would encourage people to, to make this trip. It should be on it should be on the bucket list. Any more, and you're going to make me miss home. I'll, I'm getting a bit teary <laughs> just talking about the immersion. <laughs> Just food, which is great. I know, and we haven't even gotten to the food. Yeah, what what what's on for dinner tonight? Uh, I haven't actually thought about that. Yeah, I, I I cook for myself at night, so uh, so it's nothing fancy. Well, thank of course, that we all discovered is that we knew that they were fantastic on e-commerce. Uh, I haven't been to uh, many restaurants uh, at all in India on this trip, uh, but I know that I can get just about any meal I want from just about any restaurant through Zomato. That's true. Um, get onto that app. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much, Barry. Thank you for your time and this conversation with us. Thank you for your energy, your honesty, and really, really shedding a life on all things diplomacy and, of course, India-Australia relationships, which are always on on the forefront. I'm just a former politician pretending to be a diplomat. If you want to get, if you want to, if you want to have a podcast. Uh, with a diplomat, you want, to, you want to get a serious diplomat so that your listeners might be inspired to join the profession. Thank you for tuning in. In the Spirit of Spinning Yarns is now available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Subscribe, listen in, share the love, and share the yarns. Stay safe and look after yourselves. <laughs>